It's go time. You are listening live to Quick Kicks, a presentation of Third Down Gamble. Welcome, everyone, to Third Down Gamble and our Quick Kicks. Joining me tonight, the usual crew. We've got Heath Graham and Patrick Mooney. Of course, I'm Don Charbon. We have a very special guest from the Regina Leader Post and the co-host of Rider Rumblings, Rob Vanstone. Rob, welcome to the show. Oh, thanks for having me again. I figured after the first time that you would cross me off the list with a big felt marker. I'm very flattered to, to be with you again. And hello to Patrick and Heath as well. There's never a chance that you're going to be banned from this show unless, of course, you disgrace me in some way, telling secrets about my life that I don't want relayed or something. <laughs> I don't know any, so you're free to relay them if you want to give me some excellent blackmail material. These things can be turned into capital. <laughs> I've got a really extravagant dog who uh, just rang up an $82 vet bill in six minutes the other day. If, if I have to turn on people, if I have to be treacherous and underhanded, I don't put it past me to, to be so vile. I'll try to maintain a fake air of collegiality during the podcast. <laughs> Much appreciated. <laughs> Fair warning. All right. Well, let's get right to it. We've already had a change in the nation's capital with Marcel Desjardins, given his walking papers. Of course, he claimed to his supervisor that they were making a big mistake. Were they? I'm not sure what, what took them so long. I mean, going into the year, everybody knew they were going to be bad. They were also unwatchable in 2019. I think, you know, obviously their, I think their 2016 Grey Cup win bought them some time, but eventually that clock runs out. It ran out for uh, Cody, for, Cody Fajardo. What a great podcast guest. Cody Fajardo is doing very well, thank you. It ran out for Brendan Tamman, it for, ran out for uh, Corey Chamberlain. Uh, it ran out for John Gregory. The Grey Cup only buys you so much time, and that team had just degenerated to the point where uh, it just needs new leadership. I'm not sure what the next step is for them, but virtually anywhere they go is up considering how awful that team has been. You stated that you anticipated, and many people did, that Ottawa was going to be horrible this year, and they've lived up to that expectation. What's your take on the Edmonton Elks situation, and is Brock Sunderland the next GM that might be looking for a job? It's a bit different in Edmonton. Coming into this year, I don't think people expected much from Ottawa, so at least the Red Blacks lived up to expectations, which can't be said for the Elks. In my infinite wisdom, I think I picked, did I pick Edmonton to finish first? I think I did. And I picked Winnipeg to finish last. And people still have me as podcast guests and try to uh, maintain that I'm an expert on these things. I, I think a lot of people coming into the season, they looked at Edmonton, they saw Trevor Harris, they saw that receiving core and thought this was going to be a dynamic team. And instead they've regressed. They've regressed from what wasn't exactly earth shattering before. And there's been a steady decline. And it just seems that there's just a lack of chemistry in that whole organization. And that's, that's another one that may, be, may require a total rebuild. The whole complicator, though, becomes this football operations salary cap. And I think I don't understand all the intricacies of it, but I think you can write off one contract if you dump a coach or a GM. But otherwise, all, those, all that money that remains to be paid uh, counts, against, counts against the cap. From listening to Three Down Nation, you know, Justin Duncan, John Hodge uh, do such a great job in their podcast, as, as do you. And, and they said, well, you know, Marcel Desjardins didn't have any time left. On, you know, his, his contract was up after this year, so there won't be a lot of, of money to pay there. But I, 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 don't, I don't know the specifics of the contractual situations in Edmonton, but 
But uh, I'm sure Jamie Elizondo has got more than one year. I mean, he's a first-year head coach, and I, and I don't. Uh, I would imagine that Brock Sunderland's probably obligated to the Eskimo. I knew I, knew I was going to do that to the Elks for beyond this season. So if that's the case, how much can you change things without running into the the cap wall? I think that's an area of concern. It has to be. I'm not sure how many loopholes there are for dumping contracts, dumping coaches and GMs with time left on their contracts. I'm pretty sure you couldn't do what was done with Greg Marshall here, with Brendan Tamman and Corey Chamberlain here with two and a half years left on contracts in each case. I don't think you could ever absorb that, that unless you're willing to pay your coaches $14 an hour. That could create, that could be a stumbling block as much as anything, but the Elks really aren't much better off than the uh, Red Blacks. In fact, the Red Blacks are 2-0 against the Elks. Which team is the real sad sack in the Canadian Football League right now? Another team that's struggling is BC Lions under new ownership with uh, co-GMs of Neil McAvoy and Rick Campbell. Do you foresee that they may also be taking a look at change in that organization? I wonder what's going to happen there. I mean, Rick Campbell's a first-year guy there, and I don't think anything's going to happen with Rick Campbell. But what I start wondering is when you consider that uh, the money that Michael Riley is making, the, the Lions did bolster the offensive line this season, but they're still not not having a great year. Michael Riley is 36 years old. Does something have to give there with regard to his situation? I would think at the least there would have to be a restructuring of that contract. You know, and even if there is, this is a quarterback who's getting well into his 30s. How often do you keep banging on the door with a with a, with an aging quarterback when you're not getting the kind of playoff results that you want or even getting into the playoffs? That's kind of the the conundrum that they're going to be facing in BC is You've got a franchise quarterback, and I still think he's very good, but is he good enough to get you into the playoffs? And if he isn't, why are you paying all that money? You're looking at the British Columbia Lions, though. In the last three games, they've been outscored 114-19. to 19. Rick Campbell, as their coach, has been 7-21 and 21 since his Grey Cup appearance in 2018. Does he bear any of this? You would have to think yes. Um, I mean, it ultimately stops on, you know, on the doorstep of, of the head coach. It was another team that I looked at before the year and said they should be better. And so when a team under underachieves, I think you have to look at coaching as well. But, you know, Rick Campbell's been in the league long enough as a coach. I, I just don't think that, that that is the deficiency there. Certainly, they've upgraded the coaching from what they had in 2019 when it was just that was a one and done without administration. I don't think you can keep keep stop keep changing coaches every season. That may buy Rick Campbell some time as well. It's sort of the same kind of post-Grey Cup swoon that Corey Chamberlain had with a bit of a different situation in that after winning the Grey Cup in, in 2013, uh, Ryers went 8-2 and two the, to start the following year and then Darian Durant gets hurt. And then Corey Chamberlain, I think, won twice more as a rider head coach. Then went to Toronto where the numbers just kept not working in his favor and Rick Campbell's in, in a comparable type of slump there but I, I just I don't see where Rick Rick Campbell is the problem in BC and maybe it's I don't even think you can isolate just one don't hold this against me Rob but I am a bomber fan <laughs> well given given my uh, history of cursing teams by picking them to to do well and then bombing uh, I think I actually did the Bombers a favor, much like, much like I did in 2009. 2009, I picked the Riders to finish last in the West. They finished first and never trailed in the Great Cup game when there was time on the clock. So I think I've done it again. Maybe, maybe it means you're going to get 13th man <laughs> in Hamilton on, in December, but <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> Hopefully not. When you talked about coaching carousels and that sort of thing, Winnipeg famously prior to the Mike O'Shea era were paying three head coaches at once with their revolving door. 
and they've they've certainly righted the ship. With the Bombers clinching the West Division with three games left, do you think they've clinched too early, or is their schedule set up well for them going into the playoffs? There is always that danger, I suppose. But when you look at the fragility that the Bombers have in some areas, you look like, for example, Andrew Harris. They, they can now rest Andrew Harris and not have to worry. I think you'll get enough time to fully recover from his injury. They're not playing for anything anymore, so that's beneficial. Look at Zach Kalaros and his concussion history. Well, suddenly they don't have to expose Zach Kalaros to any potentially injurious hits if they don't want to until, well, all of November is going to pass. Winnipeg, the thing that could make that a house of cards, and I think one of the, the primary reason I picked them to finish last so expertly was thinking, okay, Zach Caleros obviously is, is, is reemerged as a very good, even great quarterback in the Canadian Football League. I think he should be the MOP this year. But with that concussion history, you wonder he's one game away from everything just ending in terms of football or not being the same. So if, if uh, suddenly you don't have to expose him to any hits or to the elements until December, uh, how can uh, how is that a bad thing for the Winnipeg Blue Bombers? I think it just it just works works to mitigate the uh, the the one I think huge concern that there was about this team. A bye this week coming up. They've got really three games of substance left to get players rested and have a good look for the playoff run. But it's interesting though. We've dealt with that the last two times the Memorial Cup has been in Regina. The Regina Pats lost in the first round of the playoffs. I think they both times they had around fifty high forties, low fifties days of idleness before they had to play something that was massive. There were some cobwebs to wear off. The length of those hiatuses, hiatai. What's the plural of hiatus? <laughs> the length of those uh, gaps between games isn't too dissimilar from the one that the the Bombers are going to be facing, at least in terms of games that matter. Uh, maybe the conditioning won't be the same issue, but you have, you still have that competitive edge when you're off for that amount of time, if not in terms of the schedule, I think from a realistic standpoint. In the Memorial Cups, the Pats had a chance to play a number of games. In 2001, for example, they lost their first two games and then won their next two and almost got to the final. Well, you don't have the luxury in football of losing that first game while you're getting your legs back, while you're getting your timing back. And that is the danger. Considering... Who's the quarterback is the fact that they've got a 34 year old tailback, etc. I'll take that uh, break when, when, if I can get it and still roll the dice on everything being copacetic for the division final. Rob, we see a number of teams that are actually struggling with their offensive line, including the riders at different times. I- I'm wondering, what do you see as being some of the fix in, in moving forward? We want to see an offensive game, but right now our defensives tend to be quite dominant. When we see a team like Winnipeg, their dominance is in their offensive and defensive line right now, yet the other teams just don't seem to be competing at that same level. That's, that's a really good observation, Patrick. I, I wonder if it goes back to the, to the degree to which coaches skew their ratio and, and where they use their American players. Most of the teams stack their defense with the Americans. And most of the teams have three, if not four, Canadians on their offensive line. Let's face it, when you go back to the U.S. expansion, when you look at football coaches, if they don't have to put a single Canadian on the field, they're not going to do it. If offenses had the same ability to play five American offensive linemen, maybe there wouldn't be the same issues that offensive lines wouldn't be as permeable as they've proven to be. In Saskatchewan, I'm not sure that's the main issue. Injuries have really dogged them. The Terran Vaughn, Injury, we just never even got out of training camp. Uh, I mean, that's their left tackle. Um, they were hoping that uh, former Denver Broncos Cyrus Kuanjito would step in at uh, tackle and be really good for them. He's like, 
it's a high, pretty high draft pick in the NFL. And he basically retired during training camp. But Dakota Chepley, you looked at him and thought, there's a guy who could be a rough rider for, for a decade. Well, he might be in the, in the NFL for a decade now. No, they couldn't re-sign Darius Bladek and, and Philip Blake because they they had so much depth that you know Bladek and Blake could start elsewhere. Matlin Riley, their first round draft pick in 2020, is yet to play. A number of factors have worked against them when they have used Americans at, at the tackle position. Well, Cameron Jefferson started off the year, and now they've got Brett Boyko playing right tackle. And Andrew Lauderdale's had his good moments and his his struggles, and we've seen both in recent weeks team like Ottawa who's also in 11 different games run 11 different offensive line combinations continuity or lack thereof and playing rookie players is certainly showing in some of these teams yeah I mean you're hoping ideally to draw offensive lines almost like a chain gang just moving in unison and the more you play together the more you're going to have that the Riders offensive line has been in in flux too not ridiculously so I think their hardest hits were were absorbed before the season they don't have what I think they thought would be their A-list offensive line. It's really to their detriment. And there's really, what do you do about it at this stage of the season? It's, uh, you know, the trade deadline in 2018, they got Philip Blakeby from Montreal, and that was a pretty good, uh, good deal. I don't know if there's a quick solution out there to be found this time around. And time is running out. It's such a short season. As Yogi Berra said, it gets late early out it's here. It's also getting dark. Is it ever? I was going to go for a bike ride today, and it, I saw that the sun set at like 5.40 or whatever, and... Uh, and I'm too stupid to figure out how to charge a bicycle light with an iPhone port. So I had my, had my bicycle light charging for three hours and I got nothing. Just like for this extended period of time, I'm giving you nothing in the podcast. I might as well be, be plugged into a port for all the good I'm doing. In Calgary, Bo Levi Mitchell is having what anyone would describe as a poor year. He's one short of throwing as many interceptions as he's ever thrown in a season, and that would be in an 18-game schedule. What does Calgary do going forward? Do you keep pushing him out there because he's been the man? Or do you finally say that shoulder just isn't coming around and maybe if we're going to have a playoff run, Jake Mayer is going to have to take over at some point? It's nice to know you have Jake Mayer, but I would continue to regard him as an insurance policy as opposed to upsetting the, the pecking order there. Uh, Bo Levi Mitchell's shoulder looked fine when the when the when the Stampeders were at Mosaic Stadium. First play of the game, he hits he throws a bomb. Uh, Marky Thambles for a 71-yard touchdown. Uh, he threw some really nice passes that day. Uh, not comparably so last Saturday against against the Rough Riders. Those passes were sort of Texas leaguers. I mean, interesting. And the last two times the Riders won in Calgary, if you, if you look back. The last four three, four interceptions that Bo Levi as Mitchell has thrown during games that the Rough Riders have won in Calgary have been to someone making the first CFL interception. Look at Daron Carter with a pick six, and then you and then you look at uh, look at the three that they had on on Saturday with Dearborn, Webb, and Clark. That was the interesting thing because you look at the you look, you, you think, okay, say okay Calgary's got a veteran quarterback and the Riders are starting two first time first time starters in the, in the uh, secondary. You think that's going to be an absolute field day for Bo Levi Mitchell, just like you thought during the Duran Carter game that he's going to pick on Duran Carter, but it ended up going exactly the opposite way that to, to what one would have projected. You thought first time starting defensive backs would just be complete targets for Bo Levi Mitchell. Well, I guess they were. I, I would roll my dice, roll the dice with Bo Levi Mitchell. You know, not too long ago, people were you know saying that he's, it looks like he's back in form and he, he had a bad game. 
I'll take my chances in a winner-take-all game with, with him. When you look at that resume, and he's not an old player. He's, he's, a, he's, a, he's in his early 30s. The way it's looking now, it would seem that Calgary would be coming to Regina for the West semifinal. And I just I wouldn't feel comfortable facing Bo Levi Mitchell in a, in a game of, of that, that magnitude. I, I would always be cognizant of his ability and of his reputation because he can, he can light you up very quickly. Uh, that would be a little worrisome if I were the Rough Riders or anybody facing Bo Levi Mitchell, especially if he feels, feels that people are writing him off. He's a very proud athlete and a very accomplished one. Keeping on the quarterback theme, and I'm, I'm going to throw something at you that we've been tossing around on the podcast here a little bit as well. We saw in that Winnipeg-BC game, Michael O'Reilly got the hook because he was struggling. Nathan Rourke came in, threw four passes, got hurt, and O'Reilly had to come back in. What are your thoughts on dressing a third quarterback, getting that back in motion and and then our thought on that as well is what if that third quarterback has to be a canadian nine quarterbacks could credibly occupy a roster spot um that'd be the concern there the you know i, I like if teams can get credit for roster wise for for dressing a non-import non-import i'm showing my age dressing a national player i think there's an incentive built in there i mean teams can still dress a third quarterback they just don't have to declare him as such but I don't see the logic in, in shifting away from the three quarterbacks unless you're looking at the fact that, you know, even a, even a novice quarterback is going to be making more money than a, a roster filler who'd be otherwise occupying that spot. But you look back at two pretty pivotal games in, in Rough Rider history, the second game of the season in 2008 when Marcus Crandall gets out and gets hurt. Stephen Giles enters the game as an ineffective, and then Ken Miller puts in somebody named Darian Durant, who was number three in the depth chart, not for long. You need to go three deep. And, and also, when you look at the, the marquee value of the CFL, you want to protect your stars. Uh, Michael Riley gets hurt. In comes Nathan Rourke. He gets hurt. So suddenly you're putting Michael Riley out there in a situation where there's absolutely nothing to gain. To me, that's just exposing a, a premier player and a premier person to uh, undue risk. It's, it's just not a good look for the league when your star quarterback is playing out the string because there's no other option. I've, I've got a question to take you in a different direction. When we look at the teams in the East right now, we've got Montreal and Toronto both at 6-4. and four. We have Hamilton at 5-5. Five and five. I'm, I'm interested in hearing your thoughts. The East really is it's, it's an intriguing division because I think any one of those three teams could probably end up winning it. Hamilton's a real enigma. Because that's a team I think a lot of people were touting as a great cup material coming into the season. And the popular great cup matchup was Hamilton-Winnipeg. And, well, Winnipeg might be in Hamilton in December, uh, or could very well be. It, it's almost like what I was saying about Bully by Mitchell. If he gets hot on one day, you're in trouble. And if Hamilton starts playing to its potential, number three in the East could easily end up number one after the playoffs. That's a really interesting scenario out there. And Montreal, uh, you know, Matthew Schultz has been playing well. In comes Trevor Harris with that resume. As well as Matthew Schultz is playing, you think maybe there isn't an exceedingly long leash there if uh, Trevor Harris is is waiting in the wings. Now, is he the Trevor Harris who struggled in Edmonton? Or is he the Trevor Harris who once threw six touchdown passes in a CFL postseason game? Again, that's an intriguing presence there. You know, if you look at how it might affect the playoff race, I mean, the Riders have four games left. And two of them are on the road in the East. Hamilton's never an easy place to play. Even in 2003, when the Tiger Cats won only one game, uh, it was against the Rough Riders in Hamilton. So uh, that's just not a real warm place to play. And, and Montreal looks like a, I mean, they're a, real, they're a really good team. And uh, so 
there once was a time when you could lose, look at the East games as sort of gimmies, but I don't think either of those games games are a gimme. You can look at the West games that Rough Riders are, are preparing for is, is I think a greater, with there being a greater likelihood of winning, but Montreal is probably the biggest test the Rough Riders are going to face for the remainder of the regular season. That running game with William Stanback, they're going to have to do to Montreal what they did to, to Calgary this past weekend, limiting Kadeem Carey. And uh, they obviously made the adjustments that they needed to make to prevent Carey from going off for 109 rushing yards plus being a factor in the receiving game. Standback is a tougher proposition entirely. I mean, 200 plus yards the other day. He might be the most outstanding player. That Montreal defense is really coming around too. And ever since Greg Quick took over as the defensive line coach, their sack total is just shot way up. They are after losing their starting quarterback. You just, you never know. Hey, look at the Winnipeg Blue Bombers in 2019. Uh, Matt Nichols goes down and you're thinking, well, that might be it for their season. That was pretty much the, the peak for Matt Nichols as a CFLer, the way he was playing in, in 2019. So much can change so quickly. I thought when Vernon Adams Jr. went down, that's, that's just, that was just going to be a, an absolute crusher for the Montreal Alouettes. And certainly, I mean, that's one of the league's marquee players and a tremendous person. They've certainly followed through with some impressive performances. That looks like a really well-rounded, well-coached team across the board. The one thing I think that Matthew Schiltz brings, though, is that he's more under control as he plays the game. Adams was a gunslinger. He loved to throw it whenever, wherever, and he loved to throw it deep all the time and not put him and the offense at risk of interceptions. You don't find that with Schiltz. He's a little bit more calculated. No, and that seems to be the, the mindset of all the offensive coordinators right now. Take what the defense gives you. And the defense is, is, you know, happy to give you a certain amount. They're gambling that one play won't work and they'll put you in second and long and then it's advantage defense. And that seems to be the, the mindset across the league right now, you know, especially with Vernon Adams Jr. injured. He was sort of the one holdout who was just going to say, okay, I'm going to try and go over the top. Uh, everybody else is playing a really measured, let's throw the ball three yards and, and try and get, you know, they, they had the bubble screens and the crossing patterns and the, Winnipeg's a bit of an exception. Zach Claros, especially with that big army has, can still go over the top from time to time. They're, they've got some over-the-top potential, but, but by and large, everybody's playing the same sort of game. Can you pick away and pick away and pick away and not screw up a play? And most defensive coordinators are saying, I don't think you can. I don't think you can go 12 plays, 70 yards. And if you can, congratulations to you. But maybe you're not going to do that three or four times during the game. And then we're going to hold you to a certain amount of points. And, and we hope our offense can pick away better than your offense can pick away. Sticking with the quarterback theme, we've seen a lot of young quarterbacks getting some chances here this year and in 2019. I'll throw some names out there just for, for memory's sake. Nick Arbuckle, Nathan Rourke, Dane Evans, Matthew Schiltz, Caleb Evans, Anthony Pipkin. We'll throw him in there too. Do you see any of these guys being the next star quarterback in the CFL? Is this the wave of the future? For CFL quarterbacks, or is this just kind of a right now situation? Yeah, I don't really see a great one there. But when when the Riders signed Cody Fajardo on Valentine's Day 20, 2019, I didn't exactly kill a lot of trees writing about it. Uh, when they got Darian Durant as a throw-in in the Kerry Joseph trade in April of 2006, I wasn't heralding him as the answer. And sometimes a guy can come out of nowhere. They're going to need a new generation if you look around. You know, Trevor Harris, we've seen kind of the, the way his season has gone. He's in his mid-30s. It doesn't seem like he's that old a quarterback, but he's at that point in his career. And we've already talked about Bo Levi Mitchell. Is he is an old quarterback for that 
is he older than his chronological age will be due to you know the shoulder or whatever? And Mike Riley, you know, Michael Riley, same thing. Even Zach Kalaros is 33 years old now. You know, Jeremiah Mazzoli's 32 years old. Uh, there's got to be a re- replenishment, and there's got to be a wave of quarterbacks coming along. And but you know, sometimes I'm not even sure if you can get a read on how good the quarterbacks are because the offensive coordinators, by and large, don't give them a chance to really do much. Everybody's just executing the same scheme. It's almost as, sort of an NHL tile, style sameness. You know, I can watch an NHL game and it could be Carolina versus the Islanders or it could be Anaheim versus the Coyotes and everybody's doing the same thing. And the CFL seems to have fallen into that trap. I don't know why they close practices because they're all running the same plays anyway. It's almost the paint-by-numbers offenses that the quarterbacks are being asked to run. And that might make it easier for a quarterback to, to dive in because you're not asking a lot of the quarterback in this game anymore. You're not asking for them to be able to make expert 20, 30-yard throws all the time. You're asking them to make the correct read and, and deliver a pass. It's five to seven yards. And may, that might enhance the chances of a, of a younger quarterback being able to solidify himself pretty quickly because that all that approach minimizes the risk of turnovers, mistakes, et cetera. But it also, I think, it lowers the, the type of ceiling that a quarterback may have because you're not really saying to him, go out there and go nuts. Just the other night, I was taking a look at stats, and you take a look at Kent Austin. Even in a year where he threw over six thousand yards, he he didn't go over sixty percent. Yeah, uh, and an era where in the nineties it was much more wide open. You've you've certainly hit on the offense, but do you think defenses have a part in this as well? Have they improved? They, yeah, they definitely have improved. They're more athletic. I mean, the the caliber of Canadian players is getting better all the time too, and and the, just the general speed of the game has improved, and that tends to be a, a drag on offense. Again, I go back to the National Hockey League as the whole game got faster. Suddenly, the mismatches weren't there, and I'm not disparaging Wayne Gretzky at all, but it, it sure helped to to be Wayne Gretzky or Mario Lemieux or Steve Eiserman in the '80s or '90s when there's you know when there's six foot five, 220 pound defensemen or just who are just on the ice because they're big, and there's these grinding forwards kind of trucking along the wings. Uh, you don't get those players anymore. Even the fourth liners in, in, in the National Hockey League are fast. And I think there's, a, there's less of a gap now than ever skill-wise and speed-wise between starters and backups. And, and you're seeing, too, that back when with Flutie and Ken Austin and Matt Dunnigan and Tracy Ham, the quarterbacks of that era, there's basically a defensive back playing linebacker now. But that wasn't the case back then. So you don't have those favorable matchups where you can say, okay, I'm going to put this back or this slot back against a linebacker because that linebacker is probably a defensive back at heart. As I mentioned earlier, you're seeing a, a greater percentage of, of the Americans being used on defense than you, than you did uh, back then. I don't have the, any figures to back that up, but it just seems to me that uh, I'd never see 10 Americans or even 11 <laughs> periodically on a defense way back when. That seems to be, uh, it seems to be weighted more toward that side of it now, and that, that might, uh, could very well be inhibiting the offenses, the quarterbacks, certainly the deep passing game. After listening to a couple of offensive coordinators talk about how they relay information to their quarterbacks, I'm wondering if the old headset in the helmet is becoming a bit of a distraction because I know Fajardo can get messages almost to the point where he's calling for the ball. Yeah. With that constant chatter, does that sort of limit you? Back in the old days, quarterbacks used to call their own plays. They don't even audible anymore. No. And it's, you really notice that late in the game, if a team's trying to come back, they're trying to save time, conserve as much time as possible. They're still waiting for a call come in. Ron Lancaster could run off a lot more plays in 20 seconds than a quarterback can now. I'm a throwback. I mean, I liked it when the quarterback called his own plays. Nobody has a better feel for what's going on than, than the person who's standing out there. And it used to be the exception when a quarterback didn't call his own plays. You know, I remember it was a big deal with, with the Dallas Cowboys early in Roger Staubach's career when Tom Landry was calling the plays 
Rogers one of the few that didn't call his own plays. And now it's, now it's a, it's an event of a, if a quarterback even audibles once, <laughs> but it doesn't work well in late game situations. And granted, in those situations too, the game's building to a crescendo. The crowds could, could get louder. The visiting team is trailing. The fans are going to be trying to drown out the offense. It's going to be difficult to hear. Cody Fajardo mentioned earlier this season that there's two plays with a that virtually sound the same. Your articulation can be muted a bit by the uh, by the crowds in the background. So the terminology maybe doesn't help either. But yeah, it just it does not lend itself to an efficient you know, operation of of the uh, offense when one person's got to tell the quarterback what to do. And then he really relays that on. You're adding a step when you really don't have the time to do it. Famously, Frank Clare often said that my job as a coach was to get my quarterback ready to play the game. And once it started, it was his responsibility to run the offense. Yeah. And it helped to have Russ Jackson back then too. I remember doing a story back in 2013, Darian Duran hit Taj Smith for a game winning touchdown against Montreal. And I asked Darian about it after the game. And he basically told me that he went off script. He saw something where uh, he thought that Ty Smith could get deep. He saw a flaw in the Alouette's defense. They pretty much, they pretty much improvised a long touchdown to win the game. I remember laughing at the time saying, boy, you know, uh, 20, 30 years ago, it would have been, a, it would have been an event if, if somebody had ever told Ron Lancaster what play to call. And, and this was, that was a situation where Darian Durant just saw something went over the top and, and there they were, you, especially when you consider what they're paying the quarterbacks. You, 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 you pay them four or $500,000 a year, $600,000 a year. You don't trust them to call their own plays. <laughs> You're looking at somebody like Michael Riley or Bo Levi Mitchell, or even Cody Fajardo at the stage of his career. You don't trust them to call their own plays. Anybody can call a hit screen on second and eight. I'm sure the quarterbacks could do a better job than a lot of the offensive coordinators in coming up with something. There's a guy named Peyton Manning that made a pretty good career call on the audible. <laughs> <laughs> and it's interesting too there i mean even he didn't technically call his own plays i mean they with indy they gave him a kind of a selection of plays that he had the option to check off too but but even then he wasn't a, given the same autonomy that you know john unitas would have had in, in in baltimore once upon a time or with the colts once upon a time you threw a couple names out there for mop you threw out a zach claris and possibly a william standback is there anybody else that you think at this point can throw their name into the ring and huh. and what about on the defensive side for uh, for defensive player of the year oh uh, i mean willie jefferson's just awesome i mean <laughs> I, I, I just uh the slowest interception return touchdowns in the history of football <laughs> willie jefferson is is just an absolute force and uh you know if you were starting a team from scratch in the canadian football league and uh, you could pick one player uh, you know i i think a lot of a lot of teams say, I'm going, to, I'm going to help myself to Willie Jefferson. Thank you very much. I mean, what an absolutely amazing impact he can have on a football game. Not just as a pass rusher, but just with that wingspan. And, you know, we saw his interception the other day. I would have to. I mean, how do you not go with Willie Jefferson in that situation? But who else is a good contender for most outstanding player? It really isn't a deep pool this year. Even on the Riders, there's really no overwhelming choice. I think it will ultimately be Cody Fajardo, but he's, he hasn't had the type of year that he had in 2019. In Winnipeg, I think, you know, Kenny Lawler's had a tremendous year, even missing that one game and taking into account the circumstances he's facing. If Lucky Whitehead had not gotten injured, that would have been interesting there. Uh, you know, Hamilton as a whole is underachieved. In Toronto, mm, McLeod Bethel-Thompson's had a good year, but I don't think we're talking MOP there. And uh, Ottawa? Well, yeah, next. <laughs> <laughs>
CFL players all wear a face mask for safety. With COVID-19 on our field, we also need to wear our masks to keep everyone safe. Do your part. Be a team player. Randy Ambrosi had some difficulty going through the offseason, of course. Uh, no season in 2020, and now we're into 2021. If a genie were to appear to Randy Ambrosi and grant him three wishes, if you were Randy Ambrosi, what would you be looking for for the CFL at this time? Oh, my goodness. Um, you know, it's actually good. For the longest time during the offseason, you know, people are waiting to hear from Randy Ambrosi. And I haven't heard from Randy Ambrosi in a long time. And it's so nice. Nothing against Randy Ambrosi. It's so nice the focus is on the games as opposed to you know the state of the league and the commissioner. Yeah. Uh, that's a positive step. As far as the magic wand, I'd like to see more Canadians playing in, in prominent roles. I, I still think it's weighted far too much toward the Americans. I'd like to see the ratio change favorably in, in terms of shifting toward the Canadians. I mean, they've got to find some way to get more excitement into the game. They've got us. We're CFL lifers. We're not going anywhere. They don't have to worry about us. I mean, we're, we're, we're dedicated, but how are they going to grow the fan base? How are you going to, where's that cool factor? Where's that wow factor? Where's, where's the amazing play that can, you can put on Twitter and pe- people are going to retweet? Where's that Madden moment that can really resonate with the younger crowd? Even, even coming into this season, I don't think anybody foresaw the extent to which the offense would decline. They knew that that was a demographic that they have to really go after. And I, I think they're probably further away from it than they were before. And if I were Randy Ambrosi, I think I would put a lot more into marketing. And granted, finances being what they were across the Canadian Football League due to the pandemic, et cetera, there's really only so much they can do marketing-wise. I think you've got to market your product really aggressively. You look at every other market except Saskatchewan, they've got competition in the form of an NHL team. And I include Hamilton in that discussion, considering you know, their proximity to Toronto. They're always sleeping with an elephant in every other market. So you've got to work harder and try harder and really take advantage of every opportunity. And, and you know, that, that, a lot of that comes with, uh, yeah, I think you've got to have a very aggressive marketing strategy. I think you've got to get, the, get to the kids who are playing, whether it's you know, flag football, touch football, anything. They've already declared an interest in football. They've played their hand. They've signed up for this. You've got to get to that group. That's your future core. I think there's a lot more that can be done across the league with, in terms of using the conventional, traditional media. You know, it's not strictly a promotional tool. I mean, when we, we look at it as journalism and reporting and everything, but these teams wouldn't talk to the media if there wasn't a promotional element to it, that they're getting their message out. That whole process across the league has become very reg- regimented and in many cases restrictive. As a result, I don't think the personalities are allowed to shine. A lot of the player interviews are really sanitized really boring all these zoom interviews from coast to coast it just it really makes it tough when you can't sit next to a player and ask a a string of questions that are really going to bring out the personality and really establish a rapport with that player i understand the covid situation how that makes it difficult but that i think that's a huge factor you just you don't really get feel like you know the players as people there's not the real affinity that's developing you don't have there's not a feel for for personalities because they just can't shine through in a, in a zoom interview if, as, as they would in a one, one-on-one interview with a reporter that the player trusts and has a chance to build a rapport with, you know, you ask a good question, you ask another good question, and then somebody else is turning the queue and the, and the, the session can go off an entirely different tangent. I, I think those would be some of the thrusts. The latter one, of course, is really self-serving, but I look at my own situation right now and I'm not writing as much writer stuff as I, as I ordinarily would this time of year because it's all on Zoom. There's a really limited kind of number, number of stories that can be written using 
the players as the impetus for, uh, for storytelling. And we've got Murray McCormick covering the Rough Riders every day. I'm looking at it and thinking, okay, what are the other stories that I can tell? I think there's some really good amateur sports stories. There's some amateur football stories. There's some hockey stories. I can get time with those people to develop some angles. And, and, and I'm as, as ardent an observer as a CF of the CFL as I think there is. And this is my 50th year. And I'm writing less Rough Riders, less CFL than I customarily would in October. And a lot of that has to do strictly with, with, the, with the manner in which, which uh, the athletes are presented to the media. And that's not just a, that's not a Rough Riders issue. That's a CFL-wide issue. I think it's something Randy Ambrosi really needs to, to, to attack. Because if you meet a CFL player, chances are you're going to like him. And one of the real benefits of this league from a fan-player relationship is that there can be that relationship. You can have that closeness again, in non-COVID times. And they're not really doing much to magnetically uh, attract the player to the fan or vice versa this year. And that, I think, is to their detriment. What about the dominance of the Blue Bombers? Does a 10-1, and 11-1, 12-1 Blue Bomber team kind of take the stuffing out of the playoff race in the West? When you look at a team that's such a juggernaut, no one other than Toronto was ever solved. Yeah, I mean, I think only the Blue Bombers can defeat the Blue Bombers at this point. I look at 1989, though. The Edmonton Eskimos went 16-2, and two, and that's still a league single-season record for victories. That team did not get to the Grey Cup. A 9-9 Rough Rider team went in there and won 32-21, one of the great op- upsets in CFL history. In 1970, a 14-2 Rider team, the best Rider team ever record-wise, didn't get to the Grey Cup either. And a very mediocre Montreal team beat a very mediocre Calgary team in the Grey Cup. Look at Calgary in, in 2001, an 8-10 and 10 team versus the Winnipeg Powerhouse. So you've got examples, I think enough examples through history of, of a, of a power, powerful team being, being knocked off to totally discount the possibility of that happening. If Willie Jefferson stays healthy, if nothing happens to Zach Kalaros, if, 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 uh, if Andrew Harris is 100% for the playoffs, if you look at those formidable offensive and defensive lines in Winnipeg and at the time of year that you're asking those players to demonstrate what they do so well. Uh, generally, football is always a game of the trenches, but when the weather turns inclement, it's magnified. And that's where I think Winnipeg's strength really lies. Now, who knows? If you have an ice bowl and somebody figures out footwear better than the Winnipeg Blue Bombers, if you have a situation like the 77 breakup where the Alouettes figure out the footwear and, and Edmonton doesn't, everything changes. But all things being equal, I think only Winnipeg can defeat Winnipeg. Have you ever seen a season, though, where a team has struggled to make field goals and extra points and been as dominant, dominant as Winnipeg is this year? Yeah, that's the thing. and they, they, that, That's the one area where I thought, could the lack of, of medlock ultimately catch up with them? Uh, they've done some things to address that. If, if, if you're going to keep winning by 10 or 20 or 30, it won't matter. But if it comes down to an extra point, and those, those no longer being gimmies. Have, have I seen it? Yeah, because I'm old and I remember when offensive linemen used to be kick, place kickers and it was an adventure no matter. There was a game, I think, in 63, the Riders ended up tying it and they missed three converts. Might have been four. I mean, it was like today's holder of lucky program number 162205 will be kicking field goals in the second half. You know, in the era where even a field goal percentage around 80 is kind of considered low now, it's really shocking to see some of the, the lack of proficiency that, uh, that there, seems, there seems to be. The Riders are lucky to have Brett Lothar. He didn't have the greatest game this past week, but, uh, but that's only by his standards. Uh, and he set, he set them pretty high. 
if it comes to, into a situation where the Bombers still don't have a, a great kicking game and the Rough Riders go in there and the Rough Riders have Brett Lothar and it comes down to a clutch kick and Brett Lothar has yet to miss a kick with a, a game on the line, then the advantage swings. You can hang around with Winnipeg long enough for your kicker to be better than their kicker. You're in, you're in uh, enviable position. Doug Brown was tweeting mid-game in, in Edmonton that Ali Murtada might not make the flight back to Winnipeg. Uh, it's, it's really amazing. You know, it just, and they showed, they showed a lot of patience with him until they didn't. I mean, look, you look at the Riders two games against BC this year, how different is BC season? If they can make two field goals in the season opener and that one forty-three yard field goal in BC, well, Lions, Lions have two more wins and the Riders, instead of being at six and four, the, the record is the inverse of that. The Riders could be in a really awful situation right now. Instead, they're uh, in the driver's seat for a home playoff game. And that comes down to a couple of missed kicks in the season opener and a 43-yarder that could have clinched it when the Riders were at BC Place. Winnipeg last hosted a Western final in 1972. And you talk about offensive linemen who had the kicking chores. Jack Abinshan misses on the final play of the game, and we have a kick-it-in, kick-it-out that winds up giving the Rough Riders a second chance. I was at that game. I was eight years old, and my mom took me to Winnipeg for the game. We flew to Winnipeg the morning of the game, flew back the night of the game. So, yeah, I remember that game very vividly and very, with very, you know, very fondly. Hard to believe it's been 49 years. What people tend to forget is going into the second half of that game in, in the third quarter, the Riders were down 24-7 to yeah. and came all the way back and tied it and then had the chance to win it on the final play and then got the second chance to win it on the final play, a la Montreal in 2009. Mickey Doyle, he's... Bombers better linebackers. He got injured in that game, and suddenly the Bombers could not stop George. After Mickey Doyle went went down, I think George rushed for 155 yards that day, and more than 100 of them were in the second half. And then when Ronnie smelled the comeback, I mean, you know, say good night. And uh, I remember, I still remember Mom. I was an upset little brat in the stands at Winnipeg Stadium that day. I mean, we go there, and the Riders are just awful early on. And Mom, I can still see, I can still see her looking at me and saying, "Ronnie will find a way. Ronnie will find a way." And Ronnie found a way. You always had that faith when he was there that it could be done. Now, he didn't find a way in the Grey Cup in Hamilton, but you always knew that. He didn't always win it, but you always knew he would give you that chance. And, and that was, the, I think, the magic of Ronnie, that uh, it's just because he ran out of time, uh, but he might get you next time. That's the kind of thing that roped this eight-year-old. They've got to find a way to get the uh, eight-year-olds in the future. Maybe this is a good omen for the Saskatchewan Rough Riders, that the... Bombers haven't played close to a West final since 1972. And there's a Grey Cup in Hamilton in December. Last time that happened was 1972. Maybe it's lining up uh, half decently. Depends if Ian Sunter is going to be playing. And that's the thing. Guess guess what Ian Sunter's field goal percentage was in 1972 in the regular season? 40%. You're high. (laughs) (laughs) That's a high pie guess. Uh, I'm not not, uh, suggesting that you're, you know what I mean. He was 14 for 38. I think it's like 36.8%. Rider season opener was in Hamilton that year, and Ian Sunter made the, the kick on the, on the final play of that game, and then in the Grey Cup. But he was 14 for 38 that season. But he was two for two in kicks that mattered against the Saskatchewan Rough Riders. You've been covering the CFL for a couple of years now. Um, I covered the Regina Rugby Club. <laughs> Fred Ritter was a close friend of mine. <laughs> little, little trip down memory lane. What players and coaches stand out for you as far as guys that you've interviewed that have just been awesome to work with and you can throw some bad ones in there too if you want but I'm not going to hold you to it oh my goodness 
it's interesting because I've kind of followed them in different two different capacities, writing about them for books. Generally, those have been books about teams that I did not cover. I wrote a, did a book in the 66 Riders, I did a book in the 89 Ruffers. I didn't cover either team, but I got to know a lot of them in the course of writing those books. I mean, so you just you look through the whole 66 roster and they'll always be dear to me. Uh, I had wonderful conversations with Ronnie. There was nothing like talking to Ronnie. Uh, it just, it felt like you were, you were in the presence of royalty. I remember Peter Mansbridge telling me, Peter Mansbridge was a big Ronnie fan. I interviewed, I interviewed Peter for the 66 book. Uh, there was a final chapter in there or a late chapter in there on, on Ronnie passing away. And Peter Mansbridge wrote an editorial not long after that that appeared on CBC's website about how he was a, just starstruck in the presence of Ron Lancaster. And I interviewed him about it. He said, you know, I, I've interviewed prime ministers, presidents, kings and queens. I'm paraphrasing here. And he was, was relaxed about it, but he always felt it was something different about Ron Lancaster. He was that special. And I always had that feeling with him. The 89 book, I mean, you get to know a guy like Jeff Fairholm. I always just loved Jeff Fairholm as a player. And I've gotten to know him reasonably well since then on a personal basis. And, uh, and that's what kind of rests with, you know, sits, resonates with me and just what a, what a good guy Jeff Fairholm is. Absolutely worship Joey Walters as a player and as a human being. Joey turns 67 years old on Friday. Happy birthday, Joey. That's somebody I can just send a text to anytime I want and say hello. I'm not trying to name drop or anything, but they just, he's such an, if you're old enough to have watched Joey Walters as a player, you know how great he was. 18,000 times out as a person. George Reed, I've never seen anybody else get a standing ovation by walking into a room. No, I lied. I've seen three. Um, but the other two were in concert halls. Oscar Peterson takes a stage at the Orpheum Theater in Vancouver in 2004. As soon as Oscar, the, the greatest jazz musician ever, greatest musician ever, walks on the stage, everybody stands up and gives a standing ovation. I saw Frank Sinatra in Calgary in 1971. Nobody even introduced, in 1991. They, don't, they didn't even introduce him. He just starts walking out with his coterie of bodyguards. And as soon as people see Frank Sinatra, everybody else stands up. Only other time I've seen that is when George Reed walks into a room. What does that say about George Reed? And he's the last person who's going to bask in it or welcome it or encourage it. But there's just the quiet dignity of the man. And uh, he's such an absolutely gracious, wonderful man. And anytime you're on George Reed, it's kind of the same Peter Mansbridge, Ron Lancaster feeling. It'll never go away. Growing up, Bob Hughes was synonymous with Rough Riders for me. Bob wrote for the Leader Post for forever. He's my mentor. He was my dear, a dear friend. And uh, I always just worshipped Bob Hughes growing up. And then I got to work for the man, was hired by the man. And uh, I, I felt you know, pretty much the same way about Bob as I did about Ronnie, as about George, as about any of the other, other riders that I've gotten to know. I love de dealing with Darian Durant. He always gave us something. Cody Fajardo is, a, is just a tremendous, tremendous person. You look at the Rough Riders roster now, there may not be a nicer person on earth than Isaac Harker. I mean, just, and anytime he's interviewed, he just is absolutely lights out. He's so smart and so insightful and so helpful. And by and large, I mean, I haven't, I've been writing about the CFL for 25 years now, and I can't think of more than maybe a handful of bad experiences. And even then, they weren't that bad compared to some bad experiences other reporters had. You know, I, I had a worse experience dealing with an anti-masker than I've ever had dealing with the Rough Riders or the CFL. That had nothing to do with football. That was another matter entirely. On behalf of Heath and Pat, thank you so much for coming onto the podcast once again. We know we can read you at the Leader Post. We know we can watch you with your rider rumblings on YouTube. Where else can we find or follow you? Ah, well, we're, actually, we're starting a newsletter. Uh, and I don't know all the particulars 
about this. But uh, in early November, we're going to be putting out a weekly Leader Post Sports news newsletter on Fridays. So uh, there will be information coming out about how to, to log on to that. But I'm going to be writing a newsletter every week. Uh, that'll be kind of fun. I've never done that before, but it's nice at, at 114 years old to try something different. Um, we do the Rider Rumblings uh, podcast every Tuesday, and 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 uh, I've actually been thinking of uh, tapping this pool of individuals for a future guest. So stay tuned. There, there we there will be a reciprocal arrangement I hope coming up before too long. Um, yeah, so leader leaderpost.com. My Twitter handle is at Rob Vanstone. Uh, my public uh, my Instagram and Facebook pages aren't public, but that's probably good because nobody wants to see fourteen dog pictures a day anyway. Thank you for listening to our show. Third Down Gamble is hosted on Podbean. Follow us on Twitter where our handle is at Third Down Gamble. Join us again next time. The Third Down Gamble podcast. Audio worth watching.